Hi, Jens here. Are you interested in innovation? This might be something for you too. Every Friday, I share the latest innovation articles, ideas, videos, books, podcasts, and more that I discovered during the week in my newsletter, Connect the Dots. If you subscribe, you will receive an email into your inbox every Friday. You can't find the newsletter anywhere else, so you have to subscribe if you want to receive it. Head over to jensheitland.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. But now, let's get started with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Jens Heitland Show, where I interview experts from different fields to connect the dots of innovation and entrepreneurship. Today's guest is a disruptive innovation evangelist. He has worked in disruption of the banking industry in India, Thailand, and in the US. Sanjay was employee number seven of X.com, which was later renamed to the company we all know as PayPal. At the day of this recording, it is Sanjay's last day as an entrepreneur because Elon Musk knocked on his door again to join SpaceX to lead Starlink as country director India. Please welcome to the show Sanjay Bahargava. Hello, Sanjay. Great to meet you. Great to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm great, Jens. Uh, and thank you very much uh, for inviting me on your show. Um, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, it's I'm I'm so looking forward to learn from you and explore together with you the disruptive part of this world and the innovation piece in that. But before before we go into that, of course, we want to know who you are. So one topic which is super interesting for for me, and we we laughed about that already before. Today's your last day as an entrepreneur. But before we go into this, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you, and how did you come to where you are today? Yeah, so, you know, I sort of grew up in India and studied in India and took my first job uh, with Citibank uh, in India. And uh, I was fortunate uh, to become what I call a disruptive innovation practitioner. Uh, so I, uh, you know, Citibank at that time was looking for something quantum, like they called it Project Quantum, uh, where uh, it would take Citibank in India uh, to the next level. Hmm. Uh, so one of the ideas that I submitted got selected and then I was told, hey, you go do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that uh, sort of introduced me to, and the idea in brief was uh, to do corporate cash management for the top 300 companies in India. Uh, and that seemed ridiculous because Citibank had only six branches in four cities. And India, as you know, is vast, yeah. right? So, but I said, we can do it for the four cities and start with that. And uh, because these are the largest cities and then we'll expand. But it grew from that. We did a lot of partnerships and things like that. And with the partnerships, it became the biggest network in India. And uh, we ended up moving 5% of India's GDP uh, through this network, and uh, we had 95% market share, mm. you know. So that uh, got me sort of on Citibank's map, and they selected me to be on the international staff. Uh, and I moved to Thailand, where also I was fortunate to do another disruptive thing, but this was now in custodial services, because Thailand, this was just before the 1997 crash, actually, uh, like 1989 to 1993, I was there. Hmm. So well before, but uh, Thailand was becoming the flavor of the month. I mean, like, so a lot of institutional investors, including people from Germany, were uh, flocking to Thailand you know, to invest. And it was a very difficult market because, uh, you know, shares were not dematerialized. Uh, so you had these huge bunches of shares which you had to keep in custodial services hmm. and stuff like that. And there the... Interesting nugget was the pricing, you know. So at that time, uh, the pricing was that if you access stuff electronically, 
you had to pay an electronic access fee. While if you took paper, uh, you it was free. So I thought it was ridiculous, you know. So I changed that around. I said, if you take paper, you'll have to pay a very high fee, and if you do electronic, it will be free, and we'll sort of get our electronic system such that you won't need the paper. So that involved some training and so on, and so on. Because these are very early days, you know, of mm. uh, what was called electronic banking, uh, much before the internet. Uh, so, um, so anyway, so that we ended up getting thirty-six percent market share uh, mm. from one percent, and it's very difficult to get a custodial client to switch because switching costs are tremendous. So anyway, so that was another good thing. So now uh, I moved to with Citibank to uh, the U.S. Uh, and uh, did a bunch of things there. But the U.S. was slightly different because it was not that innovative. The branches were much more innovative. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, I was like heading strategy and quality uh, for uh, one part of the business, which was uh, global funds transfers. Uh, so other banks uh, used to handle their funds transfer uh, yeah. stuff. And I used to head strategy and quality for that business globally. Uh, so while I was doing that, I came up uh, across this thought that the internet's early days, so that would be the summer of 1998, uh, that, you know, this email is a unique ID. And it would be really nice because... Otherwise, you know, the way funds transfers are handled, uh, so suppose you are in Thailand and you wanted to transfer some money to, say, Mexico. Now you'd go to this poor banker in Thailand and tell him, I want to transfer money to Mexico. And he doesn't even know where Mexico is. <laughs> some who say Guadalajara in Mexico or something. Then this guy is pulling out all these kind of books and trying to figure out how to make this transfer happen. Right? Uh, mm. So anyway, I came upon this and then I started socializing the idea and i guess there were other thinkers around that also in silicon valley and uh, you know soon this idea really caught fire um and i also took it to the citibank board but we'll talk about that later uh, <laughs> because uh, that's another interesting story uh, so anyway so uh cut a long story short um, i tried to do my own startup but that didn't work out because my co-founder didn't want to move to the west coast and then he made it made it difficult for me to do a startup with anyone else. Uh, but mm -hmm. I had met Mike Moritz from Sequoia Capital, and Elon had uh, founded X.com, mm -hmm. and Sequoia was an investor. So Elon, uh, Mike Moritz told him about me. I was in New York, and so I got a call from Elon, and he said, "You know, you must come and meet me." So I said, yeah, yeah, next time that I'm in the Bay Area, I'll come and meet you. And I didn't know who Elon Musk was because he was an unknown entity at that point. You know? yeah. um, and um, so he said, no, 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 I'm sending you tickets. You get on the next flight and come. <laughs> so I ended up going there. And then, uh, you know, uh, we had a very, very long interview, uh, which actually uh, ended up with my saying, okay, I'll join you. But... Uh, here are my terms, you know, uh, I want a fair amount of restricted stock, I want, I want to be a VP. And Elon said, that's all fine, but you have one problem with you that you are a big company guy. And I don't know how you uh, work in a startup. So let's work together for 15 days. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, if your terms are fine, then if you do fine, then I'll agree to all your terms. And he did. Uh, and well, the rest yeah. is free. <laughs> so ju just to ask a question, so you, which which time was that around early 2000s or? No, no. Uh, this was September 1999. So you worked September 99 uh, with Elon Musk where he was literally not really known at that time. Like like compared no, no, no. to today where like I mean, almost everyone knows. I mean, there were newspaper articles because, you know, he had sold a company for $300 million in cash. Yeah. Okay, which was the largest cash deal at that point on the internet. Um, and But that was it, right? Uh, and then he had decided to uh, invest $20 million in X.com and then Sequoia put in 20, I think, something like that. 
and uh, that was about it. And you know, there were thousands of dot com companies at that time, right? It was yeah. the dot com boom. Uh, so there may have been, then once it was started, uh, you know, our little office was above uh, bakery. So there was one article somewhere which said the bank above the bakery or something like that. You know, <laughs> initially maybe some people thought we were doing an online bank, right? yeah. yeah, but it was really an online payment company, uh, and uh, yeah, that was it. So uh, I was, uh, I think. Uh, the seventh person to join uh, Elon yeah. in this. Um, so, and uh, then Elon, and then there was a person on the technology side and me, we would have like these discussions which went far into the night in terms of designing the stuff and thinking through the whole thing hmm. and setting very ambitious goals. Um, well, there's another story with that, which I'll get into at some point. <laughs> So, you know, so, so was it PayPal already named at that time or was it diff different names? No, it was X.com and they acquired, uh -huh. uh, we acquired a company called Confinity, which mm -hmm. owned the PayPal brand. And Peter Thiel was the CEO of that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then the combined entity was called X.com PayPal. Uh -huh. uh, and then X.com was dropped and it became PayPal. <laughs> That was the story. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And so long time ago already. Yeah. So after that, in 2004, I came to India and I did a bunch of things, um, you know, including angel investings, uh, some startups, working with the government, uh, because I realized that the Indian ecosystem was uh, not very supportive for mm. innovation. Mm. Uh, it's better now, but still has a ways to go. Um, so, and... Uh, we can talk a little bit more about what a supportive ecosystem should be for countries. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of people have toyed with this idea of why why is Silicon Valley so different? <laughs> like why does it do all the stuff that it does? Why can't I do a Silicon Valley? And a lot of people call themselves, you know, this is Bangalore Silicon Valley or this is you know, whatever Silicon Valley. Uh, but none of them end up, you know, to this date, I'm sure they will at some point, hmm. uh, but uh, you still haven't been able to replicate Silicon Valley. Yeah. So, so then, then you came back to India, and you're still in India. You just moved, yeah. like, yeah. what was like a couple of weeks ago or months ago? Uh, no. So, uh, yeah. So from I moved to India in 2004, actually, very long time ago. So uh, I've been in India for. 17 years uh, now, and mo uh, most of it was in Delhi. But about mm -hmm. a, a few months ago, I moved to Mumbai. Uh, one reason being the pollution in Delhi, yeah, which uh, uh, my mother-in-law had some problems, which was not very good for her to carry on mm -hmm. uh, in a very polluted city, uh, especially in winter. Uh, so that was part of it, but also my whole professional network, so to speak, is all in Bombay. Um, and I was trying to be in Delhi to try and work with the government and things like that. But I have done that for a fair amount of time. And, um, you know, the uh, uh, thing was that I felt that, you know, it was time for a change. Hmm. Uh, so, and I also wanted to get into uh, kind of coaching uh, with a very... Uh, sort of low-cost coaching model hmm. uh, where I would work with companies uh, who wanted to be innovative and if they created what I call like these skunk works. Uh, so I could talk to them about disruptive innovation yeah. where yeah. any number of people could attend, uh, but uh, then also coach if they wanted. Uh, yeah. Because I wanted to spread this message of innovation very much like I think you want to do, Jens, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, very much like that. Because That's how we found each, each other. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, uh, so that was what I was doing. And uh, I really felt that, uh, you know, my days of being a practitioner were over, mm. you know, uh, because uh, time moves on, you know, and uh, as you age, you're not that familiar with the technologies. You don't, you haven't grown up with them, yeah. right? 
So I still believe that um, you know, if I was to be a disruptive innovation practitioner at the real grassroots level, uh, then I, I would be not very good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, okay, uh, I was very good, uh, but now not anymore. Uh, so, so that was the logic where I said, you know, hey, like, let me enjoy life and mm. be happily retired. <laughs> um, and I kind of, uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen this movie, Lord of the Rings, and whether you're a fan. Yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah. So, in some ways, uh, you know, I'm like Bilbo Baggins you know, in the Shire. <laughs> okay. And uh, then Elon is like Gandalf and comes across and says, hey, you've got to do this, you know. Um, so, anyway, so, yeah. But uh, I think this whole... Uh, Starlink opportunity, which I've agreed to head in India, uh, is amazing because it can bring broadband, like, you know, 100% broadband coverage is possible. And that can really, uh, you know, uh, change a lot of things. Uh, like, for instance, if all the primary health clinics in a rural area are connected, uh, then telemedicine can actually become a reality. Yeah. Uh, and bandwidth and you know buffering and all will no longer be a constraint. Yeah. Uh, so I can see that potential, you know. And if I could do something to help that happen, it fits in right in with my goals of trying to make the world a better place. Yeah. Can you so, can you elaborate a little bit on the story how that happened? That that you're getting to start tomorrow at Starlink, which is a company in oh. SpaceX. Like just yeah. a little bit of that story, because officially you are, you you wanted to retire. <laughs> yes, yes. No, so uh, you know, um, uh, person from SpaceX contacted me and said that uh, you know uh, Elon had told them good things about me, and they wanted to get access to India, and uh, you know, would I have any thoughts, and could I connect them with some people? So I did. Now, this was probably two and a half months ago. And, um, you know, I don't know what transpired after that, but I was actively trying very much to help them, you know, yeah. um, and give them whatever insights and saying whatever is useful, use it or discard the rest. Right. Uh, in there. And uh, I guess they've talked to some of them, they thought about it, whatever. But then suddenly about 10 days ago, or maybe 15 days ago, I got a mail saying, uh, you know, uh, Elon and I have talked about this and, uh, you know, if uh, you are interested in heading uh, India for us, uh, then we would be delighted, right? So I was a bit taken aback, to be frank, because I, I said, yeah, you know, wow, I'd be super delighted to do this, but I just need to know, uh, you know, why am I the best person for SpaceX? Then they gave me some logic that, you know, they needed a person that they could trust. They needed a person who could speak their language, you know, who was an out-of-the-box thinker and stuff like that. And I checked all those boxes. So then we had a few things, you know, of, uh, because my main concerns were that I age, uh, to some extent, hunger. I mean, I'm not hungry anymore. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, but I didn't see those as showstoppers because touch wood, I'm in good health and yeah. full energy. So age is just a number. Um, and the hunger does not have to come from wealth. It can come from passion. Yeah. You know, and this is something I'm truly passionate about. Uh, so the few things I was concerned about was uh, the domain and a little bit about India because India is difficult. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I didn't want to be breaking my head on India, you know, like in there. But, you know, again, we've realized that if I hire the right people, the right firms uh, and, you know, manage the process well. Um, and the lack of domain was not uh, such a big thing because I'm an engineer, right? And yeah. I'll yeah. learn new things. Uh, so this would be a fantastic thing to, uh, while I, now I know very little, but my... Uh, knowledge is increasing. I'm now dangerous because I have a little more. <laughs> yeah. I think I will be smooth and be up the curve uh, fairly soon. Yeah. So awesome. That's how it transpired. Yeah. 
how how was it just the last one on that story uh, how was it to to do an, doing a job interview with Elon Musk and you have worked with him in yeah, the yeah, past so was it like a normal way of no. job interview no 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 because there was nothing about you know what have you done since you left <laughs> whatever no, because i think they had researched that whatever but and that was not the important part right so elon was just telling me because he knew that uh, to get me out of retirement and to say yes to this opportunity was not that easy right so yeah. he was trying to convince me but you know i was more or less convinced so it was not also that part but it was more uh, like him telling me what his vision was and my asking him questions and uh, then uh, he was trying to see did i get his vision okay mm -hmm. and Um, was I excited by it, um, and I was trying to see what is his vision, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> the thing. So, uh, but it was amazing uh, because you know, uh, it's like you know, say two people who play a professional sport and are good at it. Uh, mm. If you meet, then even after a number of years, you can connect very easily. Yeah. So. the conversation was very free flowing it was scheduled for half an hour but it went for an hour right <laughs> which uh, i i can imagine for, from your schedule that might be easy to to add another yeah. half an hour for his schedule is slightly different yeah yeah no and i was surprised because i was supposed to speak uh, with uh, this person who had contacted me from spacex yeah. Yeah. and uh, you know uh, but then suddenly i got a call a message saying oh no elon wants to join and uh, so uh, so i was a bit surprised i said why is elon wanting to join <laughs> you know but then it it was nice um, you know so i loved it and um, of course elon dominated the conversation <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can imagine does but um, it was uh, really nice and it's a very very uh, very nice uh, mission that he has with starlink yeah. uh, because you know it's really to serve the people who are underserved and uh, it's not a competitor so there's a lot of uh, misinformation about starlink i really didn't know much about starlink so yeah. i didn't even know about the misinformation for that matter uh, but the thing is that people think it's going to compete with terrestrial broadband with 4g 5g sector but it's actually not it's a totally different physics uh, and it's complementary not hmm. competitive right so if you can reach a place with 4g 5g or fiber then by all means you should do it but you can't reach every place on earth yeah. with that and uh, you know so places which are easy to reach uh, satellite broadband is expensive one and secondly uh, the signals interfere so if the density is too high it's perfect for fiber 4g and maybe the coming 5g yeah. but where density is low that's not good for uh, satellite uh, whether density is good that's good for satellite uh, mm. and not good for these other people so so it really makes the job of providing 100% broadband coverage uh, for everybody on earth very much easier and it will not be through satellite only 3 to 5% of them will be covered through satellite yeah right the rest will be covered by uh, you know all these things but then you know you can imagine the applications because the applications don't have to be designed assuming that you know the network will fail and something yeah, else yeah exactly and so, it's, it's it, that's then enabling people to be connected who can't be like literally don't have a signal don't have a cable don't have 5g whatever right now yeah, that's yeah, then a huge yeah. impact for their lives and as well for society and business yes absolutely huh. so i would i would love to dig into the disruption and disruptive innovation and and you said Let's start with individuals. So, what is disruptive innovation for you, and specifically then looking into the individual perspective? Yeah. So, the first thing that I want to say is that you know, not everybody can be a disruptive innovator. 
right? So yeah. I'll take the example of a cricketer because that's very a popular sport in India uh, or basketball, uh, you know. So not everybody can be a Sachin Tendulkar or a Michael Jordan, right? Yeah. Uh, so you have to have some kind of an innate talent, right? So whether you have an innate talent for music or you have an innate talent for a particular sport. Mm. Uh, so there is some innate talent that you need uh, for being a disruptive innovator. But if you have that, uh, then you have to work really hard at that talent to burnish it, to get it to other things. So there's, uh, you know, very few people who will be like, I guess Mozart or Beethoven who started playing the piano at some ridiculously early age and they were like supremely talented or a person like Elon, maybe it comes very naturally to him. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, but for most people, you have to work at it. And the, it's something that can be learned. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, but you have to work at it systematically. And uh, now there are lots of resources. Like I have a YouTube channel, which is free. But there are many other resources, you know, which are there. And you can study the books by Clayton Christensen are fabulous. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so if you study it, then and then the question becomes, why study it, right? Why should you be a disruptive innovator, right? You can do so many other things. But like, if you're good at it, uh, then you can make a lot of money. But that's a side effect yeah. of making the world better, according to me. Okay. Uh, you know, so you can have a great time, enjoy it, as well as make the world better. And if material wealth is your goal, then you can do that as well, right? So there's very some very strong reasons to see whether you can be a disruptive innovator, and then to work on it. And even if you are not yourself a disruptive innovator, and you are a very senior manager, let's say. Uh, you need to know how to nurture disruptive innovation or disruptive innovators in your organization. Yeah, that's okay. super important point. Yeah. Because so, I, I've seen it in the past as well, where it's like there are people and they're in, in corporations, they're sometimes seen as the troublemakers yes, yes. <laughs> Be, right. because they, they question things from different angles and things like, hey, let's try this. That sounds crazy, but I think there is something. And I, I agree, it's super important to nurture that and, and being being able to give them space in an organization. Yeah. So let me move on now to companies, unless you had some more questions on individuals. No, that's good. It's good. So now moving on to companies. So, you know, I'm going to actually tell you a story because I think uh, you can communicate things more clearly with stories, hmm. uh, you know. So I told you earlier that, you know, I'd taken the idea that became PayPal and uh, to Citibank uh, in the summer of 1998. Mm. And while I was not senior enough to present it to the board directly, but my boss's boss did. Okay. Mm. And the board considered the idea and they liked it because it was a good idea. Right? I mean, I, people could see it, right? But then there was this question of saying, hey, you know, should we be the innovators um, you know, because this will cannibalize our existing funds transfer business. Okay. Mm -hmm. And also where will we put this, right? Because this is not in a consumer banking thing, a corporate banking thing, you know, we don't know where to put this, who will run it, uh, in there, you know, so that's a very classical problem in, um, big companies, maybe yeah. not in Ikea where you're from, but, uh, you know, it's everywhere. Uh, yeah. So. So then the board said, no, no, let's just wait. If it happens, somebody will do it and we'll buy them or do something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in, in there. So I was, and at that time, Citigroup was merging with Travelers, right? So then I spoke with my boss and I said, you know, there are lots of people who are going to lose their jobs because of this merger. Uh, so why do you want some poor person to lose their, this job, right? Uh, I'm ready to go. Just give me the package. The package was quite generous, right? So I said, <laughs> Let's take this and go and explore the world, yeah. you know. And then I'd given myself three years to try and do something outside Citibank because Citibank is very comfortable, you know. Like you have the golden handcuffs and everything, you know. Um, so anyway, so uh, so that happened, right? Uh, I left Citibank um, and uh, then ended up 
in PayPal. And then PayPal started making waves. So, um, you know, these analyst meetings. So uh, one of the analysts, uh, I think she was a lady called Mary Meeker or something, was a very big internet analyst. Hmm. Uh, she basically asked Saribank, saying, oh, what are you doing? You know, you're letting companies like PayPal eat your lunch. right? So then Saribank felt compelled to mount a competitive response. Huh. right? But this is the interesting part. And it's this whole DNA thing that what they ended up doing was creating a unit called C2IT uh, within Citibank. Uh, and they just didn't have the DNA. They didn't understand the internet. So they made funds transfers. They said, we can't make them free. Let's charge $1. Hmm. Right. Because free was like, okay, you know, it's too, uh, you know. So, and then, you know, they had 18 million touch points. You know, at that point, PayPal had 1 million touch points. So in PayPal, we were quite worried because if Citibank comes in with 18 million touch points and we have 1 million, you know, yeah. it's then this is a network thing, you know. Uh, it would be hard. Uh, but they made like a three-page form that you had to fill in on the internet to open an account. <laughs> in PayPal, you could do it with two or three clicks. Yeah. Right. And then they didn't say, like, I had a bank account with Citibank for 18 years because I used to work there, right? Hmm. But I couldn't get a C2IT account, you know? I had to fill in this three-page form on the internet and stuff. So then we said, okay, we are more worried about garage startups than <laughs> Citibank, you know, um, in there. So, so that uh, turned out to be a disaster and they had to shut it down, okay? Yeah. Then they had a third crack at the cherry, uh, which was uh, where they could have acquired PayPal, uh, when eBay acquired PayPal for one and a half billion dollars. Hmm. And I think this was in 2002, if I'm not wrong, right? So maybe 20 years ago. And now PayPal is a 300 and odd, 320, 330 billion dollar company. Yeah. So it's grown like 200 times plus from that acquisition. Yeah. But they thought it was too expensive, right? So they passed on it, right? Now, I, I don't want to sound like I'm blaming anyone here because uh, everyone does things and I have a great regard for Citibank and all that. But it's like my motto is blame no one, but try yeah. to inspire everyone. So the only reason I'm telling this story is to inspire the managements of today, right? Because they have the benefit of the story, yeah. right? Yeah. Saying that, please nurture your disruptive disruptors. Try and figure out how you're going to make disruptive innovation work. And the interesting thing is that I told you earlier about my successes in the same organization, Citibank. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, in India and in Thailand. So you know, so in the US, very different from the branches, right? So it's uh, quite important to think about how you can actually uh, create an enabling ecosystem and also uh, have uh, maybe startups okay, uh, compete with your existing products. Yeah. Keep them separate. Because if you don't do that, then you will get cannibalized. Yeah. You, know, you have to cannibalize your own stuff. Then you will win, you know. So I think a lot of companies, they forget about this. And, you know, I can speak for banks because that's where I'm from. Uh, I don't think anything has changed in banks over the years. Because R&D, which could be called the innovation function, yeah, yeah. is not a recognized function, yeah. you know, in most places. And even if they, it's, it is, it's for uh, show. So, yeah, it's it's let, let's try to improve it a little bit, like two percent of what we have. It's not, not the, the goal is not to disrupt. Yeah, but like in Citibank uh, in India way back, uh, they made a very conscious effort of putting some of their best people into these uh, quantum projects, hmm. and uh, then they made sure that whatever emergency there was in the business as usual, uh, they would not take these people out. Yeah. Because they were the future, yeah. right? So this difference between the future and 
the present is another very important thing to uh, this thing. And you have to have the right people in this kind of thing, you know. So that's the really important part uh, to figure out. Yeah. So that is what I wanted to actually try to communicate to companies in these uh, sessions, which I would probably do for two hours and, you know, talk about one hour about all this kind of stuff. And uh, here I should also mention one very interesting book, the last book that uh, Clayton Christensen wrote. Unfortunately, he passed away. Yeah. We lost a great mind uh, very early. Um, but I think there is a Clayton Christensen Institute and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah. And co-authors are there. And I've actually managed to connect with them also uh, quite recently. So, um, so you know, um, the uh, so this book asks a very interesting question, and this uh, will be a good segue into the next thing that I want to talk about, which is disruptive innovation for countries. Yeah. Um, so it asks, like, when so many trillions of dollars have been given in aid, so many trillions of dollars have been given by philanthropists, uh, by foundations, and so on and so forth. Why are the outcomes not that good? And we are not talking about just wealth. Okay, we are talking about climate change. We are talking about a variety of things, you know, like health outcomes, um, environmental outcomes, wealth outcomes. So, and in fact, this book shows that in about 20 countries, the indicators are worse than they were 20 years ago. In some countries are better, but not as much as you would think, right? So it examines why the traditional way of thinking does not uh, is not very optimal for uh, making the world prosperous. Yeah. Uh, so very thought provoking, and you know it offers solutions also. So it talks about some market creating innovations and stuff like that. But I won't steal. The book's thunder by <laughs> trying to uh, paraphrase it. Uh, but I would highly recommend uh, that we read it. I'm going to be reading it for the second time. And then I'm in the complex that I'm staying, there are a few people who are interested. Uh, so we might do a book discussion uh, on the book and stuff like that. And uh, um, I'm almost going to make it mandatory for anyone who wants to join my team in India. That yeah. they must so, so whenever they listen to this, they know where it comes from. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and also there was another very interesting course, uh, which was uh, a Harvard course on edX called Entrepreneurship in Emerging Economies by a professor, Tarun Khanna. It's mm -hmm. an old course, uh, but very interesting, you know. So, uh, you know, these are the two mandatory things that I'm going to like. You also got to do that on the verified track. You know, because yeah. there's an audit track, which is free. But I'm saying, look, if you can't spend like 15,000 rupees or whatever it is uh, to, uh, you know, uh, sort of gain some knowledge, uh, then maybe you're not the right person for my yeah. team. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I, I like that way of thinking where it's, you need to invest into your ways of thinking. Yes. It, it's not, not not the history of what you have done. It's not the, your experience. It's, it's really the thinking is the important part because that helps you to, to like you said, it's connecting the future to, to today and looking into how can we use these opportunities while thinking differently in different ways and then really yeah. bridging that. Um, yeah, I would, I would like to dig deeper into the disruption from a country perspective. Sure, sure. What, so I what, think what, that in some ways is the most important. Please yeah. go ahead. Yeah. No, yeah, I was was about to ask you, what are the things you see, and what are the things you have discovered? And, and we have had an email exchange where you as well have taken an outlook into that, and and how are like possibilities we could do? Um, would you would you like to talk about these topics going going deeper into that? Yeah, sure. So you know, in countries, it's kind of interesting, you know, because. Um, so I'll speak with the perspective of India, but, you know, it yeah. could apply to many other countries. Yeah. Um, so India has had a kind of socialist roots. So it's never been communist. 
but it's never been capitalist. But the basic underpinning has been socialism. Mm. Uh, and, you know, so free enterprise uh, was bad, but it's always been liberalizing and reforming and moving more and more towards a free enterprise system. But that, what I would call the baggage of socialism is still very strong. And I am not a very ardent uh, believer in unregulated free enterprise. In fact, I think it's terrible. <laughs> okay, so you know, we need to have free enterprise, but it needs to be regulated. Um, right. You know, uh, but it needs to be regulated in a very interesting way. Uh, so I'm again going to tell you a very quick story on PayPal. Uh, uh, so you know, when we launched uh, PayPal, or rather X.com. Um, that was December 7th, 1999. So around the 15th, and we did it because we wanted to do it before Christmas and there was this $10 giveaway, and, you know, which kind of helped X.com explode, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so around the 15th, Elon got a call from uh, a gentleman called Roger Ferguson. And this conversation was supposed to be off the record, but now it's so many years I've guess people will forgive me for putting it on the record <laughs> and I have other places as well. So, uh, so um, Elon said, you must come with me for this meeting because you're the only person who understands banking. Okay. Uh, so I went for this meeting and, uh, you know, the uh, person said that, look, uh, I only have 10 minutes, but tell me, uh, and so don't tell me what X.com is because I have opened an account and I've moved money. So first of all, we almost fell off our chairs because we're saying the vice chairman of the Fed, someone reporting to Alan Greenspan, okay, <laughs> has used X.com, which is an unknown entity, like one among thousands of startups. So how do they even know that we exist, right? <laughs> so that was interesting because he said that, you know, in the Fed, we have uh, people who are looking out for innovative companies, you know, young staffers. And one yeah. of them put out this company to me. So I just went home and I, you know, uh, opened an account and I moved stuff. So I know what it is. So let's not waste time on it. But tell me, why did you start this company? And Elon said, you know, payments in the world are terrible and we want to disrupt this and blah, blah, blah. Right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so he said, look, we've been trying to tell the banks and the credit card companies for the last 20 years to do this. So we are delighted that you're doing it. And while this conversation is totally off the record, Remember, you have a friend in Washington. And, uh, you know, so we were like, oh, over the moon, you know, but this is how regulators support startups, you know, mm -hmm. if they're doing something which they consider good. Now, it wasn't as if our friend in Washington did some special favors for X.com or PayPal, but they ensured that companies like X.com and PayPal did not have to get licensed. So it's a little bit like Bitcoin, you know, no one knows what's happening, right? Yeah. And slowly the regulations are coming. So in countries where they uh, permit innovation, they allow people to do stuff till they become a systemic threat, hmm. right? So a company like Napster was shut down because it was out of control, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but a company like PayPal, when the banks and other people complain to the regulators saying we have to do all this compliance and all of these people are just getting a free ride. So the regulators told them that, look, don't tell us our job. Okay. Yeah. We know what this company is doing. It's doing good. Just go and compete with them. You know, don't come and complain to us. But that's not the kind of thing in most other countries, you know, because always when there's disruption, there are going to be vested interests. Yeah. Right? We want to preserve the status quo. So I feel it is the job of the regulators in a country to actually a promote innovation uh, because they want it and then also regulate it, right? So you can trust people, but you need to verify. Yeah. So you yeah. can't have now the same regulators, right? So in the US, and I don't know if you've uh, seen this documentary on uh, Netflix called Inside Job, you know, no, which is not a commentary to Greenspan and all. But it's about the debt crisis, uh, you know, that housing crisis, the bubble. Mm -hmm. Right? 
so you can go very extreme on one side you know just saying oh you know wait now you don't need to do any checks and you can get a mortgage with no down payment and, and you have, then you have all these uh, funny structures come up and you say it's all innovation you know and all that no so it's not so you know i think the pendulum swung too far yeah, yeah. so you have to get a balance you have to support good innovation and you have to put the brakes on bad innovation right so it's a tough job the regulator's job is a tough job uh, but and you have to get that balance right right so what i feel in a country like india is that there are many problems right like so there's this air pollution problem there's a poverty problem there is uh, like you name it there's a problem yeah. you know schools are there you know whatever and there's also a huge amount of development you know india is one of the fastest growing economies of course covid gave it a set back but it's still among the fastest growing economies in the world right yeah. so it's like jekyll and hyde in some ways you know um, in there so now to me there is no way like so if you take schools in india the government schools are nowhere as good as private schools okay now they have been trying to fix this for years but if you got uh, really large companies to come in and say hey we need your help to fix the schooling system and we're going to privatize it kind of thing and yeah. here's the thing okay or you know that we want you to do and we want you to invest a fair amount of capital so there's a very high minimum capital requirement and you can do innovative stuff and you can tell us a plan and if your plan looks good we'll approve it and it'll be really quick uh we'll approve it and then you have to say what outcomes you will deliver hmm. and if you don't deliver those outcomes there'll be heavy penalties right so in that way you know they can uh, roll out the red carpet for innovative firms and really attract them because you know india has some fantastic advantages it has huge density so the whole problem or huge of everything you know like you name it it has it's very big yeah. so uh, you know uh, so the thing is that what is the most challenging problem for a disruptive innovator or a disruptive innovation company it is not raising capital it's not building a team the biggest challenge is getting critical mass yeah right and uh now the second thing is data right huge amounts of data right so the nice thing is so in some ways in india they announced something called the new umbrella entities which would compete with the national payment company of india which was quite nice but then some for some reason uh, maybe i don't know maybe good reasons whatever they cancelled it right so that doesn't send the right signals uh in there right but uh in other places there is talk of uh sharing a lot of agricultural data mm. uh you know and then having companies like google microsoft etc come in and do data mining and artificial intelligence and so on and so forth to improve agricultural productivity and stuff like that so where can a company like google or microsoft get this rich trove of data you know Yeah. which is fantastic so how can countries think of what are the things which will attract world class companies um or startups whatever because even startups these days you know you can raise huge amounts of capital capital is not the issue um you know if you're good and uh, how can you solve those problems really fast now some people say you know why fast right because fast can create a lot of problems But see to me this is a little bit of ivory tower thinking you know hmm. because uh, people like you and me we sit in nice air conditioned rooms and you know whatever right uh, and we are not like we are ivory tower thinkers you know but if you are a person who's on the ground struggling with poverty you know struggling with infant mortality struggling with maternal mortality you know for you every month which is lost is uh, a struggle you know yeah. Yeah. so i think that we have a moral imperative in certain ways uh, not to keep debating these things you know so one of the things uh, which i think people have won nobel prizes for is this randomized control trials 
you know which are the gold standard of uh, mm. trying to prove something now they're fine you know but they take a lot of time right now with disruptive innovation is a different thing you know you go in and you try something and it fails and then you learn and then you fail again like so i you know i've been watching spacex on the side i mean how many starships have blown up oh yeah you know right and they cost a lot of money but you know that's the way you're going to learn you're not going to learn by putting something in academic textbooks and you know then having like really good debates on it and you know peer review and all this kind of stuff so there's a place for all that but i'm saying that you know where lives are involved where human lives are involved where delay is critical you know i don't think uh, you know we should err so there may be problems you know with disruptive innovation there can be uh, lives lost also in certain cases yeah and i think i watched one of your podcasts where there was this gentleman who was talking about i forget his name but uh, he was talking about how there's a totally wrong question being asked about autonomous driving right yeah. where in people say how many people will autonomous driving kill right while the correct question is how many will it save right from uh, getting killed <laughs> right <laughs> right so it just depends on the lens uh, that you look at things with uh, in that Yeah it was so, it it was the discussion or episode with Mario Herga who is who is living yeah. in Silicon Valley but is an Austrian so like yes, he he's coming German. yeah he, he's coming from the same background like I come and it's like yeah we are thinking differently here in central europe right now <laughs> where right. where it's really about like how can we be extra protective and super safe in whatever we do and we think everything 20 times through before we do it but it like you say it's, it's not going to happen when it comes to innovation and, and disruptive innovation you need to try you need to as well be fine with failing on the way because that's the only way you learn yeah so one of the big takeaways that i want people whoever listens to this podcast to take away is uh, that if you are part of what i call the new monarchy in india which is the bureaucrats the regulators the judiciary and the politicians uh, you know to see that you need to kind of trust the private sector but you need to verify hmm. right so first they're not all bad players in the private sector there are some very good players right just as there are some excellent bureaucrats some excellent regulators some excellent judges some excellent politicians and in general i like to believe that the world is good you know it's not that you know everybody is because after you made a certain amount of money i know there are these anecdotal cases of people who just make you know money after money and nothing is enough for them but there are enough people i think on the other side also um, people like maybe you or me and others and on, and so on so forth who say we've made enough right yeah. and one day we are going to die right and we're not going to go with nothing right so you know there are enough people uh, on the good side you know uh so it's the job for the people running countries in my opinion okay to uh, find and attract the good people and then give them role and put them feet to the fire okay and uh, so that is the big takeaway that i would like to and you know i would also like to talk briefly about uh, the china uh common prosperity experiment because i find this very interesting i don't know much about it but it's very close to this universal prosperity thing yeah but i would like to also approach it with a little bit of a different lens uh this common prosperity thing and i think there's a need for a new social contract and i'm the first to admit that look uh, my thoughts may be haywire here but i don't mind because that's the whole practice of disruptive innovation you put thoughts out there and be ready to change you know yeah. if yeah. people say you're crazy and then you agree that yeah this is crazy okay um, in there so in my sort of construct at this point in time i think making obscene amounts of money should absolutely be allowed right because if people do this legally uh, why not right yeah. uh, so why begrudge an elon musk or a bezos or a zuckerberg or whoever you know if they made the money the right way 
uh, then you know it's fine. But I feel that this uh, thing of uh, that in some ways there should be uh, some amount of um, levy which goes to a universal prosperity foundation, not the government, hmm. and this foundation can take care of welfare and also the minimum wage kind of jobs because. I like, I think there was a person, Rudolf Berger or something, who wrote about utopia or something like that, some, something. Uh, you know, so it's this universal basic income, but with a little bit of twist, right? So if you work for 15 hours in a mind-numbing job, which is like a minimum wage job, yeah. uh, then you should be paid for 40, you know? And if country, I mean, things work 24 by 7, uh, then you then jobs are not going to be a problem, right? But in this design, welfare abuse and et cetera, et cetera, has to be thought of. And there are several issues. So it's a very, very complicated puzzle, right? And there has to be a room for welfare because, you know, if there are various monks and certain religious orders who just want to spend their life seeking God, then they should be allowed to do that. But mm. then you have vows of chastity and whatever else, right? So you you can't just sit down and watch Netflix and you know football games and say, okay, you know the state, you please pay for yeah. all that yeah. stuff. Right? So it's it's a very uh, to me a very interesting and complex puzzle. And the last thing that I would want to end on, and then it's up to you to see if you have anything else for me, is this whole notion of ending poverty hmm. and not alleviating poverty, right? Because many people feel, and things like microfinance and all, they don't end poverty, right? Because if you are going to borrow money at a high interest rate, like even though I was initially in my early days reasonably affluent, I could not afford a mortgage at, say, 4 to 6% uh, real rates, Right, because you know, mortgages in the U.S. are almost at zero. You know, if you take the tax benefit and the rate and all that, maybe one or two percent. But you know, six percent. You know, then I can't afford anything. Yeah. yeah. So for some strange reason, people feel that poor people can do this. Right, rich people can't, but poor people can, which to me is insane. Right. Uh, so. So, you know, microfinance is clearly not the solution. It's very good for alleviating poverty because percentages are misleading when you're talking about small sums of money, hmm. right? Uh, you know, because the absolute amount is not high. But for things of actually pulling people out of poverty, and it depends on what you define as poverty, like say a person having an affordable home, having uh, like uh, some form of transportation or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, so if you define it like that, then, you know, microfinance is not the answer. Um, so with today's technology and platforms, uh, we can end poverty. You know, everything is there to do this, except some innovative thinking, good regulation, and, you know, some of these other societal factors because there are many people who will not admit it, but they really don't want poverty to end. Yeah. yeah. So one, of course, is the conspiracy type of thing that the poverty industry, there's a whole industry around poverty. <laughs> there's no poverty that industry will end. But I'm not talking about that. Uh, you know, what I'm talking about is uh, the middle class, people like you and me, especially in India. Uh, you know, so if uh, the people who serve us, the chauffeurs, our domestic help, and so on and so forth, uh, they uh, become more affluent, right? Then they're going to demand more wages. Yeah. And our life is going to become more difficult. Right? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, it took a civil war to end slavery in the US. So I think there are very, very complicated issues around poverty, around universal prosperity, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I don't, like I said, want to blame anyone, you know, uh, because blaming never gets us anything. You know, it just raises people's hackles and 
then there's no conversation. There's just shouting, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, in there. But I want to say, you know, we have everything we need. There is nothing to be invented. You know, so with person-to-person -person lending, person-to-person -person insurance, and various things, uh, you know, we can end poverty. You know, uh, and we can make these. So, and that fits into the other stuff in the social contract, saying, you know, cheap credit is one of the enablers to ending mm. poverty. Mm. So, the amount of cheap credit you can get, like if in your welfare class, will be zero, right? If you are in the minimum wage class, you'll get some. But if you're in the third class where you're either contributing to this fund or whatever, then uh, you'll get a lot and uh, to help you come into the fourth class, which is the contributing class. Yeah, yeah. Right. So this whole business of how you make the path to upward mobility very simple uh, is fascinating to me. And this actually ties in with why I accepted this job because... Broadband is one of the things which is going to help upward mobility. Yeah. Uh. Right? So the more uh, you can... Uh, because, you know, I'm in some ways also a fan of uh, Star Wars, the movies, series. Uh, you know, where you have the good side and you have the bad side. You know, so you have the Darth Vader and you have the Luke Skywalker <laughs> and whatever, right? So now if the path towards good is very bad, uh, very tough... Right? Yeah. Yeah. Then you're bright. Why will you not go to the dark side? You know, become a terrorist, become a criminal, you know, because your life is not worth living, right? And you're bright, right? Then you say, okay, I'm going to take some extreme risks or I'm going to hit back at the society which doesn't provide me opportunity. Hmm. You know? So I think it's very interesting. And um, I had, so ultimately, you know, after this gig, <laughs> will want to devote more time assuming that you know I continue to be healthy and all that and um, uh, spend more time thinking about this and uh, but maybe you know other people will think about it and solve it uh, so that I don't need to spend time trying to solve it that would be so awkward, right if that happens yeah, and it's yeah. it, it's quite interesting we started the conversation a couple of uh, weeks back where, where it was around these topics and discussing on how 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 do we solve this as individual societies companies and so on and it's really figuring that out will take a while but i think we need to start that's that's yeah. that's the key point if we don't start in finding out how to like you said we have all the puzzle pieces we just need to put them together in different ways to find out how what is the right combination of puzzle pieces to to solve it yeah and the interesting thing is that you know if you solve the puzzle Uh, the pot of gold is humongous, as PayPal has shown, or like mm. even this book that C.K. Prahlad had written, The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. So this is not an altruistic thing, right? Yeah. People who solve this, you know, like this is the new treasure island type thing. Right? Like, you, know, you are seeking gold here. You're not just doing this for altruistic reasons, you know? Yeah. But you need, like, say, even Christopher Columbus was supported by the monarchy to set sail, uh, right, to discover new worlds. So you need that, you know. So it's this whole thing. You need the Christopher Columbus's, you need the whatever, the Queen Isabella or something uh, at that time. <laughs> you know? uh, so you need all that, you know, like uh, to make some, you know, uh, really good leaps uh, for this world. Uh, and I'm very optimistic. I think, you know, there are so many people who are so pessimistic, you know, say millennials will have a terrible life somebody else i am not in that camp at all and i may be very wrong i you know but i'm not a doomsdayer at all yeah so like hans rosling whom i'm another fan of uh he says that i'm not uh, optimistic i'm not pessimistic i'm a possibilist it is possible that this world will become really nice hmm. okay Uh, it is definitely possible. So it's not optimistic. It's not pessimistic. It's possible. <laughs> I love that. And that's that's maybe a good good part to end the the conversation and in, in, in the recording at least. Um, yes. So how can people reach out to you? How can people find you? 
Well, you know, I'm like all so actually because I was not a very private person, uh, so I'm there on LinkedIn. I'm not very active on Twitter somehow. You know, yeah. I find so LinkedIn is one place where um, you know I have quite a few followers and you know stuff. So I tend to use that platform um, to post some of my thoughts and things. I have a YouTube channel, but mm -hmm. I don't think I'm going to get a lot of time. But there are lots of videos there already. Yeah. Maybe some hundred videos, you know. So if any of them are useful for people, great. You know, um, you know, they can look at it. Um, and one of the things when people look at it, you know, is that thoughts change. I don't want people to tell me, you know, three years ago you said this, and now you're saying that. Yeah. So so what, right? I, you know, I may have said that, but my thinking changed. Uh, okay, but so. So that's uh, the thing. And uh, yeah, so people can reach out to me. Um, there, I've written so many documents. <laughs> okay, that My emails are mentioned there, my personal emails and my phone number yeah. and so on and so forth. So uh, of course, I'll have a work thing which will be totally separate. Uh, and I don't want people to reach out to me on that <laughs> because unless there's a work-related thing. But yeah. they're happy, I'd be happy to reach, uh, you know, because... Um, I sort of manage my time very efficiently. So while I may have less time, uh, this is a passion. So for your passion, you make time. Yeah, that's important. Now we'll put a couple of links to your YouTube channel, LinkedIn and so on as well into the show notes so people can, can find you easily. Sanjay, thank you very much for your time. I wish you... Uh, a lot of luck and fun as well in, in your new job that's starting tomorrow. And I, I'm really looking forward to see um, Starlink um, changing really the, the broadband in, in India, or not the broadband, but the connection, let's say, it, in India and see. The, the, I, I at least foresee it's like great job you will be doing. I'm, I'm following you closely and, and hope oh, to stay in contact. Thanks a lot, again. So I need a lot of luck. <laughs> Yeah, that's how it is, and 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 really looking looking forward to see what what disruptions are coming. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, thank you very much again once for once again for having me on your show. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You will find the links and resources in the show notes of this episode. If you would like to support the podcast, the most impactful thing you can do is subscribing to the show on any of the podcasting platforms and give me a review. This will help me to reach more innovators around the world and bring some of you into the show. If you have any question to the guest or want to engage with me, feel free to reach out to me on social media and contact me there. Thanks and see you in the next episode.